Welcome to Global Data Pod Research Wrap. I'm Nora Santivani, Senior Economist here at JP Morgan. And joining me today, I have Mike Hansen on the line, also from the Global Economics team. Hey, Mike, how are you doing? Hey, Nora, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. So a very interesting note uh, that we've recently published. Uh, we'll be discussing it on this episode. And this is around the shipping trade disruptions affecting the Suez and Panama canals. And we've um, discussed in this note how these disruptions are likely to impact global supply chains and global inflation. I mean, as we look at the sort of news headlines coming out over the past month, I'm getting a sense of deja vu a little bit, right? Surging shipping costs, disruptions to supply chains, lengthening supplier delivery times, production stoppages even at some of the car manufacturers, citing these delays in obtaining inputs. So all of this is a bit reminiscent of, um, I guess, what we saw during the pandemic. Of course, the current episode is quite different from COVID, and we'll discuss why. Um, but the broader point is that you know these pressures, upward pressures on prices, are coming at a time when you know much of the disinflation we've seen globally has come from a sharp slide in core goods inflation, right? Um, whereas services is pretty sticky and elevated. So you know even a modest rebound in goods inflation could render overall core inflation pretty sticky around this 3% mark, which is actually our base case, and therefore complicate central bank efforts to achieve this last mile from 3% to 2% in the disinflation process. But anyway, before we talk inflation, why don't we take a, a big step back here, Mike, and just talk about what we've seen happen uh, in these uh, two canals. Um, you know, th these have been two quite distinct events, right, unfolding over the past couple of months. And then maybe just talk us through, you know, what role each canal plays in global trade and how they interact e with each other and so on. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, as you pointed out, we've got disruptions that are uh, distinct but effectively intertwined of late uh, between the Suez and Panama canals. Um, very different sources, obviously. <laughs> Suez is geopolitical. Um, it's a recent, fairly recent uh, phenomenon and some question about how long it might persist. Panama is more climate related. Um, it's basically related to the fact that there's uh, been a drought in Panama and the lake that is used to feed the canal so you can kind of raise and lower the ships and the locks is at like a, I forgot, 50 or 70 year low. It's, it's at, a, at a many decade low in terms of volumes. And so that's curtailed traffic as well, right? So in terms of the, of the reductions, and we can talk a little bit about just how important these are, right? Suez volume is estimated to be down about 45%. And Panama, it's down about a third. So these are important you know, choke points uh, in global maritime shipping. Uh, and so these are not trivial reductions, although obviously, as, as you pointed out, not quite at the scale we saw back with um, the disruptions we had to global shipping during the initial COVID lockdowns. Uh, yeah, so think, mm -hmm. go ahead. Yeah, no, uh, you know, maybe we can put some numbers on it. So um, you're about 80% of global goods trade relies on, on on sea transport. And then within those two canals, what are the, the key sort of distinctions you'd make with regard to... Oh, yeah, so Suez is about 12% of maritime trade. Panama is about 5 uh, mm. About 30% of the trade through the Suez is global container shipping traffic. And so that's important when we want to think about goods, right? So obviously there's a lot of, of shipping that goes on that is commodities, right? Whether it's bulk commodities or 
oil and other petroleum products. But the container shipping part of the Suez is significant. And about 70% of that traffic is between Europe and Asia. Uh, to Panama, much of the traffic is to or from the U.S. Almost three quarters of the traffic is to or from the U.S., particularly the U.S. East Coast. Um, so there's obviously differential impacts in terms of the parts of the world that are most directly in, uh, affected by these. Um, we noted in the in the piece itself that the redirection of the Suez traffic, right? So what you're basically doing now, of course, is you're moving ships around the Horn of Africa. You're adding a week, to maybe even two weeks, to the total travel time. That's obviously putting pressure on the costs of that, whether it is insurance costs that have gone up significantly, but also, of course, it takes more fuel. You have to pay the staff uh, longer uh, on these ships. So all that's putting upward pressure on uh, costs. It's effectively a, a meaningful reduction in the capacity for global shipping. Um, we estimated the piece, as I mentioned, about a 9% reduction effectively in uh, uh, global shipping capacity. So it's it's a material shock. Again, talked earlier, and we'll, we'll scale it a bit more as we go forward. Not the same magnitude uh, as COVID, but nonetheless, it's material, right? We've seen some pretty big jumps in shipping costs, for example. Yeah, and you know the the point that you made, and I want to emphasize it again, is that you know the we have seen pretty large declines for both container ships and oil tankers transiting through, um, for example, the Suez Canal. But the Suez Canal is far more important for goods rather than hydrocarbon carbon trade, right? So if you think about the transit of crude going from the Gulf, that's more reliant, for example, on the Strait of Hormuz. And, you know, they, they can use pipelines um, such as the East-West Saudi one. So they can bypass that choke point to some extent. So I think what we're emphasizing here is that the implications are much more significant for these container ships um, going through the Suez Canal. Um, that's going to inflation discussion, right? Because yes, talking yes. about final goods versus intermediate goods, right? The things absolutely. that are contained by and large final yeah. goods. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We'll come. We'll come to that. But first, let's talk about the 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 scale of the increases we've seen in shipping costs, right? And there's all sorts of shipping cost indicators. You and I have spent a great deal of time trying to go through them individually and how they differ. Some have increased much more than others. Um, they're measuring different things. So do you want to just sort of help guide yeah, us through what, what we should be looking at? <laughs> exactly, yeah. I mean, so two, there's two commonly cited measures that have really kind of hockey sticked, if you will, have really shown very sharp upward movements uh, are up about two and a half fold over where they were, say, at the beginning of December, right? And one of those is the, the World Container Index, WCI, commonly cited, uh, produced by a jewelry shipping company, and then the other is the Freitos Index, and they're both up about that amount. amount. Um, there are some other indices that are, are cited. Um, there's the, uh, the Harpex, which I think is finally showing a little bit of an increase. Uh, that is um, a charter index, so there's perhaps reasons that that is uh, more delayed, showing less of a spot increase and more of a kind of a, a slow feed-through. Um, the, the main um, broad shipping index is often cited that is a very distinct thing is the Baltic Dry Index. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. That is a measure that is not of container ships, but rather of bulk carriers, right? So we talked about a little bit earlier, right? It's going to be basically commodities that are shipped in bulk. So it could be food stuff, it could be metals, or um, there, there's some, you know, any kind of large bulk, mostly commodity type stuff. Yeah. That index actually jumped sharply into the beginning of, of uh, December, is, mm -hmm. is has pulled back a fair bit, about half of that's come back. But if you look at where it was, say, six months ago or so, it's still up about 50%. Mm -hmm. 
you know, it's up some, it's not up nearly as much as some of these other measures are. Um, again, for historical context, if you look at kind of, you know, what the costs are right now for shipping, you know, the, the standard unit is a 40 foot equivalent container, right? And those prices have gone from you know, under 2000 to close to 4000 for some of these main indices. Remember, they'd gotten to 10 or 12,000 at the peak of the pandemic, right? So just put a little bit of scale on that. And then we can get data on individual routes. Um, you know, what we have certainly seen is substantial jumps in the routes that go through the Suez, particularly from China to European ports. And so depending on which index you look at, they're generally up 300 to 350% uh, with data through the last couple of days. It's up even more than we had in the note last week. Um, you're seeing about a 250% increase on the reverse route if you're going from Europe to uh, Asia by some measures. And then you are seeing some pickup in the U.S. It depends on where you look. Some of them show actually a little bit larger increase to the West Coast. Some show a larger increase to the East Coast. You would think if it was a material disruption of traffic uh, through the Panama Canal that you would see a bigger move on the East Coast. Some of that was uh, redirected prior to the geopolitical uh events that have arisen um, in the Red Sea area to the Suez, ironically. So this is the sense in which these things actually interact a little bit, right? But generally speaking, you're seeing some pretty significant increases. They are somewhat more concentrated or somewhat larger, if you will, in the routes between uh, Europe and Asia. Uh, but you've seen some meaningful pickups in the in routes to the U.S. as well. Okay, yeah, yeah, perfect. So um, maybe we can talk about then some of the implications for inflation, and then maybe we can kind of come back after that to how long these increases could persist and what are the factors uh, going into that assessment. Um, I mean, on the inflation side, uh, these increases in shipping costs that you mentioned, you know, they're, they're going to pass through into imported goods prices with a lag. So that's the first point I want to make. And really, that will depend on both the, the duration and the intensity of these uh, disruptions. The impact on prices will also depend on a bunch of other factors, um, things like cyclical factors that can either reinforce or mitigate the upward pressure on prices. So, for example, if we're in a period of weaker consumer demand, then a greater portion of the upward pressure on shipping costs could be absorbed by profit margins, um, right, rather than reflected in higher um, final output prices. Um, but either way, you know, the broader point that I made at the beginning is that global goods disinflation has been the primary driver of lower inflation. So, you know, at the very least, these um, uh, recent um, increases in, in shipping costs, they, they risk interrupting that disinflationary trend. And at the worst, they could push traded goods prices higher for quite some time. Now, we have come up with an estimate here. Um, of well, before we do that, we want to put a little bit of a context on kind of how much global goods prices have moved uh, of late, you know, just yeah. how large a disinflation force is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so globally, uh, core goods um, inflation has slid, well, it slid into defa deflation in the three months through November, we got down as low as minus 1% annualized. Uh, relative to kind of the pre-pandemic norm, you know, that's an undershoot. Pre-pandemic, we were kind of averaging something like 0.5 positive, right? Uh, so there's been a significant move down. You know, I think in many ways we felt that 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 negative number was probably not very sustainable. And, you know, we've been arguing that because most of the normalization in supply chains had already completed, 
that ultimately we would see a fading of that deflationary impulse. And that was kind of already in our forecast. Um, now, relative to that, we are now seeing the data through December. And actually, that's showing uh, already uh, a rebound to zero from minus one. So we're already back to zero. So that's already a pretty meaningful swing. And, um, you know, if we kind of look at these increases in shipping cost, and, you know, as I said, we came up with some estimates, uh, at the very least, it would suggest we kind of revert to this pre-pandemic historical average of about zero five. There, there could be a bit of upside to that or, you know, downside, depending on the various factors. We've got the China deflation spillover, which is still there pulling us down. Um, but I think that that impulse is certainly fading. Uh, we see that fading impulse in the in the U.S. import price data as well. And then now we've got this increase in uh, shipping costs, which is the new impulse. Now, as I said, I think it's going to take a few months for this to pass through to consumer prices. At least. And <laughs> at least, yeah. And then the work we've done on this suggests it's about four months. Now, that sounds a bit precise, but <laughs> that's what we're getting in most of the, the global models. Uh, in some cases, we looked at this for Europe separately, it could take up to four quarters, so it could take substantially longer. But for global and for US, we found the most significant impact after about, you know, a, a bit more than a quarter, a quarter or two, let's say one or two quarters. <laughs> um, so the, the estimate we came up with, which is uh, really just based on fairly simple regressions of uh, core goods uh, CPI inflation on these various container shipping indicators we did control for demand uh, just to be just to be sure uh, they point to a 0 0.7 percentage point add to global core goods inflation in the first half of the year and that's for overall core inflation that's zero three so you know it's not massive i mean certainly relative to the COVID period it's small small change but it's also non-negligible right especially if you're in this two to three percent range for core inflation that zero three can make a pretty big difference whether you're running 2.5 or 2.7. Um, so yeah, those are the sort of numbers we, we came out with. Yeah, and so I, I guess one of the questions we've heard from clients is trying to get a sense for, you know, do we think that that's a, an upper bound? Do we think that there's other factors? And you mentioned a little bit, for example, I've heard some clients ask about, well, this is all fine and good, but isn't the weakness in China, you know, the, the weak China PPI really gonna dominate this? How do we think about that? Yeah, so, uh, you know, when the, the China deflation impulse started and, and, and was, um, you know, happening in a material way, and that was sort of the middle of last year, right, we, we started to see this very extreme deflation in China's export prices, uh, we're falling at like a 15 plus percent pace. At that time, we estimated that after about two quarters, there's a lag as well, we would see a roughly um, 0 0.7 percentage point um uh, downward impact on global core goods inflation. So in terms of the magnitude, it's actually pretty similar to this increase that we're now estimating. So at the global level, the two are offsetting each other, but I think the timing is different, right? Sure. I think the peak deflation impulse from China is already kind of behind us, whereas this is a new impulse now, which is going to be um, pushing inflation higher. Um, you know, a couple of things to bear in mind, though. So when we think about... Um, you know, comparing this to COVID and, and, you know, why we think the impact could be a lot more muted. I mean, some of them are quite obvious, but, you know, the most important one I would highlight is that we're not in a situation of se severe supply demand imbalances that characterize the COVID period. In fact, it's going in the other direction. So back then in 2021, 22, um, you know, we had this excess supply for goods and we had significant constraints on, um, 
uh, capacity. China went into lockdown. So you had this very large positive shock to global goods demand coinciding with that negative supply shock. The big difference now is that China, after last year's reopening, you know, uh, has resulted in material gains in IP and this excess capacity is again, something that is still helping to sustain this broader downward uh, pressure on uh, global manufactured goods prices. Um, as I mentioned, global goods demand is not currently surging. The profile of demand is at best mixed. The composition has shifted away from goods towards uh, services. And then the nature of, of the shock is quite different, right? We're not talking about government imposed lockdowns, right? It's really, as you mentioned, a reduction in effective container shipping capacity, right? So delays in delivering these inputs rather than curtailing the actual production of the imports uh, coming from Asia. And then the final point is that you know, for the shipping industry, there's still generally an ex excess supply of, of container ships. Um, so um, I think overall, this speaks for a fairly modest um, impact relative to what we saw back in uh, 21, 22. Right. And that could be a reason why once some of these disruptions abate, that you might not have quite the persistence we saw in the past, right? That, you know, if you don't have the excess demand and you don't have the shortage in terms of shipping capacity, you could perhaps see these things abate fairly quickly. We'll have to see, obviously. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, in terms of how long um, these disruptions could last, um, it's hard to tell. I mean, in terms of the, yeah, it's, it's a big question mark, but I think, um, you know, we'd need to see security guarantees for quite a few of those ships going through the Suez Canal. And um, that's not something we obviously can guarantee will be resolved anytime soon. And then for the Panama, I think we're forecasting that the, this drought will persist for some time. Exactly. Yeah, that, that one almost um, certainly is going to last longer. Looks like perhaps it's less of a direct uh, impact on, on some of these issues that we've been talking about. But nonetheless, it looks like it could certainly be more persistent. And I guess it's worth highlighting that we've scaled that seven tenths to the idea that you're going to have a, about 150% increase on the shipping costs on a bit of a sustained basis. But of course, they just keep moving up. So there's always some chance that that could be a larger impact as time goes on. We'll have to see. That's right. And maybe we should uh, just speak very briefly about this uh, global supply chain pressure index that the New York Fed publishes, because I know a lot of our listeners will be tracking that one. And uh, what we see there is that that index uh, is basically a simple to a tool to measure the inflation impact of the, all of these supply chain dislocations that we talked about. And you know, it includes quite a few of these shipping uh, indices that we, we mentioned, but not all of them. Uh, so actually uh, it does not include some of these container shipping costs uh, that have risen most materially so, um, in the recent period. It's the Baltic period. Dry and the Harvix, right? It's actually, right. The, they're moving in the opposite direction. So the, the irony here is it's actually not well designed to pick up think we're seeing at the front end of these containerized shipping numbers really surging. Yeah, absolutely. And that that supply chain pressure index, um, just to be clear, so it had fallen into negative territory uh, through the first three quarters of last year, but had already moved back up to zero as of November. So there was that inflection point that already occurred, suggesting that supply chain pressures had kind of reverted to historical norms. So that was even before the latest rise in these container shipping costs. So that leads us to believe that this supply chain pressure index most likely will rise some <laughs> um, in, in yeah, coming months, but let's see. Yeah, in that index is they, they try to scale it against what's happening with the PMIs. And one of the things we haven't really seen yet, and we'll get the flash PMIs for DM, I think, tomorrow, right? Um, is you haven't yet seen a, a really significant impact on things like delivery times. But um, there's certainly 
reasons to think that we might actually start seeing some of that. And so that would obviously be something to monitor that would help us uh, get a better sense of what the pass through is, not only, of course, for prices, but also, as you mentioned, to the idea that there's been some pr production disruptions already in a handful of yes. companies, particularly makers <laughs> in Europe, and that that could potentially spread as well. So I think a lot of this is focused more on risks. I think we have to acknowledge that, right? Uh, but, you know, <laughs> it's skewed in a very specific direction and it's skewed away from this idea that the really notable, deep and persistent, maybe not persistent, but deep and, and notable uh, goods deflation we've seen of late uh, may not have a whole lot longer to run. And as you point out, we're already starting to see some signs in the data, even before the full effect of this uh, latest set of, of supply disruptions uh, show up, that there's that there's some, some fading of that impact. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yes, we have mentioned, I mean, there could be a hit to global industry. And generally that, you know, reinforces these concerns that we've had that global industry is getting off to a pretty weak start here and, you know, might struggle. And then, you know, this could be an additional factor. This is very much an adverse supply shock. So the, the end result will be higher inflation and weaker uh, industrial production. But maybe a word on how some of the central banks might be uh, looking at this, right? Uh, so DM central banks have been trying to push back on market expectations for right. early rate cuts this year. Um, so how does this factor into some of the, some of that thinking maybe from the Fed? Is this something that's registering on their radar or is it just going to come a bit too late? How are they thinking about this in your view? Well, it's interesting because I, I, people have, uh, you know, I've heard a few clients kind of latch on this idea that, well, it'll, it'll pass through, but it'll, it'll pass through after March when the Fed's already decided to cut. I just the Fed is forward-looking and the Fed is recognizing that this is a risk. So I'm not sure that that's the right way to think about it. I, I think, mm -hmm. you know, Fed officials are going to, as I said, monitor the totality of data. You've certainly seen core PCE measures come down. We'll get another print this Friday. Um, whether they've really come down enough to make the Fed comfortable at this point is an open question, given that Fed rhetoric into the blackout period this week was, was as you point out, kind of pushing back against the near-term rate cut narrative. And I think the fact that, the you know, you still have, from this totality of data perspective, a pretty big gap with still elevated CPI inflation. There are, you know, still signs that the labor market is reasonably tight. You've now got these additional sources of upward pressure. I don't think the Fed's in a rush, and, and I really don't get the impression that some of the other DM central banks, like the ECB, are in a huge rush to cut rates the way markets are thinking. So we're still thinking kind of a, you know, a mid-year June uh, beginning of the easing cycle is is more likely. And, and these sorts of events on the margin, they're not huge yet, but these sorts of things on the margin probably make central bankers a little bit cautious because, again, I think coming into the hiking cycle, they're very late. They recognize that. And certainly the Fed has been very explicit in that they've, they've felt like they've been head faked on soft inflation a couple of times in the last year or two. And they don't want to run the risk that they've eased too soon. Uh, and let inflation kind of reestablish itself, right? That actually happened uh, in the Boker period initially. So I think all of that feeds uh, enough caution that we're just not super convinced that any of the DM central banks are, are going until the earliest towards the end of the second in terms of cutting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, of course, we'll get a lot of noise in the U.S. inflation data. For example, we could get a pretty big fall in used car prices, it looks like, based on the industry numbers. So there'll be a lot of noise and volatility for us to chew on, I'm sure, in the next um, next few months here. Uh, I mean, look, for EM central banks, just, just to make sure we've got that base covered, we're reasonably comfortable that by... Uh, sort of second half of this year, most central banks will have inflation down 
within their comfort zones and and you know for EM Asia it's already there uh, more or less so I think that's quite different from the US and DM central banks where they're still fighting for this last mile from three to two I think for most DM central banks they're reasonably comfortable with what they're seeing and I think that allows them to continue to ease but not in an accelerated way so obviously the fact that DM central banks are waiting here are probably conducive to EM central banks proceeding in a quite gradual fashion, I think, with those uh, rate cuts. All right, Mike, well, well, that's great. Let's let's leave it there in the interest of the time. I'm sure we could keep talking about this uh, topic for some time. Uh, thank you to our listeners for tuning into the Global Data Pod Research Wrap, and we look forward to continuing the conversation on the next episode. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan Research Reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2024 JP Morgan Chase & Company, All Rights Reserved. This episode was recorded on January 23, 2024.